you are now listening to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast with Dr. Taylor Crick. Dr. Taylor is an expert in helping those suffering with autoimmune disease, and he himself has autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is rampant today, and the purpose of this podcast is to educate about the underlying causes and natural solutions to halt autoimmune disease progression. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. For more information from Dr. Taylor, visit www.autoimmunedocpodcast.com. Without further ado, here is your host, Dr. Taylor Crick. All right, welcome to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Taylor Crick, and I love teaching people the underlying mechanisms behind autoimmunity and chronic disease. I feel like when you understand these mechanisms, the solutions become more obvious. So I, and a lot of people that I meet as new clients, they say, hey, I just binged every single one of your podcasts. And so if, if somebody listens to all my podcasts, they know pretty quickly that I'm a mold guy. And I tell everybody that I'm a mold guy. And I say that admittedly to say, I'm not trying to fulfill my own biases. And I'm not trying, I say to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but mold is just such a huge problem. So I'm super excited to be talking with Dr. Pejman today, who is a DO and a pediatrician. It's holistic pediatrics um, is his practice. In fact, I have his Instagram page pulled up right here. It's holistic kids with a W, but a great just Instagram following, but talking about kids. And I think that obviously, you know, I have three kids, Pejman. So I think that that's just such a crucial topic is just our kids' health. But we're talking today about mold mycotoxins and mental health. And and let me just say one more thing before I open the floor and introduce to you, but I I had mold issue, Pejman, when I was, you know, the big issue was when I was maybe 34 or 35 years old when it came to a head. But looking back through my life, I had my first set of tubes in my ears at nine months. I had tubes in and out of my ears probably 12 times. I had ADHD as a kid. I still excelled in school and things like that. I mean, not, not you know, my teachers might disagree, but I was not a bad student, meaning. Uh, but I was hyperactive and I had, I'd get these week-long sinus infections. And my mom even said, this was when I was in my 30s, she said, every time you got these sinus infections, it was always after hockey practice. And so when you start to become aware of the mold world, you start to think things like, Boy, what could be moldier than a hockey rink? It's wet. It's it's you know it's uh, every single person that's ever walked off the ice is soaking wet, and then you stuff your equipment in a bag, and you open it up again the next week, and it like you know smell like something died in there when you're a kid. But that's like that's a recipe for mold. But I just in hindsight, I had these mold issues and didn't realize it. So welcome to the show, Pajman, and introduce yourself. But Start wherever we'd like, I guess, but the topic is mold, mycotoxins, and mental health, and I've got some questions for you, but hi, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And, you know, five years ago, about five, six years ago, I really did not want to get into mold. Uh, You know, back then, I was kind of peripherally aware of it. But I certainly had no interest in, in getting involved. And it was really just one of my patients that was really, really struggling. He had the classic pans, pandas, aggression, irritability, anxiety, you know, just falling apart, destructive, uh, et cetera. And 
I had done everything for him and nothing was working. And outside of putting him on meds, which mom was very clearly against, we ran up against a wall and, you know, she's like, Hey, what's, what's this mold business? You know, could this be mold? And I'm like, well, shoot, I have no idea. Like everything that I've tried has completely failed. So I'm, I'm game. Let's, let's check this out. And Long story short, we did some testing, didn't look that impressive. She ultimately hunted down Dr. Neil Nathan, got a consult with him. I went along with it because I had no idea what was going on. And it was it was Dr. Nathan, who's become a dear friend and mentor now, that was like, no, this this, this is classic mold. And, mm-hmm. you know, that just kind of blew my world open. And, you know, back then, like when I encountered that, I'm like, oh, great. I'm, I'm just going to refer all my mold patients out to someone else because I don't want to deal with this. And then I started looking and realized like, well, Jesus, there, there aren't that many pediatricians that actually know how to deal with mold. And five, and if six you refer years all ago, your was- mold, if you refer all your mold patients out, who are you going to see? Because it's ev- almost everybody. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. But yeah, it's true. I mean, it's true. But. But that's that's when I reluctantly got into the world of mold. And, you know, I, I have to underline highlight reluctantly because I really didn't want to do this. And this is after me doing a decade or so of, of training already in holistic medicine. And I did how functional medicine. Been, how long have you been in practice? So I've, I finished my residency in 2006. And then I finished my, uh, like, I started getting into integrative medicine in 2008. I did the Andy okay. Weil fellowship in 08 and then from there went and did functional medicine and then from there and went and did uh training in this field of endobiogeny which is kind of medical herbalism but with a kind of neuroendocrine twist so i i've done a lot of training in a lot of different fields and you know by the time i got to mold i was like you know what i'm done training i just want to do my own thing Mm -hmm. and it's just this this was staring me in the face and you know, I said, well, shoot, no one else is is really doing this. I guess I just need to do this. And it was really just because I wanted to take care of my patients. And that is when my eyes started getting open to just this entire world. And there was it was about three years ago that I just got to this place where I started looking and, and realizing kind of like what you said, like, holy cow, like mold is everywhere. and it is affecting a disproportionately large number of at least the kids that I see who have, you know, mental health challenges and these poor kids with autism, these poor kids with pans and pandas and aggression and anxiety, a whole bunch of like the severe ADHD kids, you show me a severe ADHD kid and at least 50% of the time, I'll show you mold that's behind it, you know, learning disabilities, these kids with processing issues, uh, on and on and on and on. And it, it's just like, it, it's it's really become not just an eye-opening experience, but I mean, frankly, a frightening experience. I would completely agree. You know, and I've even heard Dale Bredesen say it on the other end of life of Alzheimer's and dementia. And he says, this is an, an unseen epidemic and there is a wave of these cases coming, you know, not so much the neurodevelopmental, but more on the other end of neurodegenerative. But Still, it is it is a little bit frightening. And I, I think that to me, it's not something to be scared of as much as something to, well, okay, well, what can I take control of as far as even air purifier, not only just detoxification, but just how can I breathe cleaner air? But obviously, there's a lot of strategies. So 
I tend to think of, and again, I'm biased and I'm old guy, but like I could, if somebody comes to me with ADHD, first off, I'm thinking, or pansas, I'm thinking dopamine. And then if I'm thinking dopamine, then I'm thinking mold. Or if somebody comes to me, my point is, what cases that come to you are you immediately suspecting mold? Like another one for me would be POTS. I see a lot of long COVID and POTS type patients. And so I'm immediately thinking mold right off the bat. But is there, are there any cases that you're not thinking mold? Or how do you compare that with Lyme or strep or some of the other things as we're talking about these neurodevelopmental disorders or toxic burden or heavy metals or other things? How do you distinguish that, Pejman? Great question. Uh, if if you'll allow me, I, I want to just touch on what you said. Please. That, that yeah. is that th- this conversation shouldn't be about fright and fear and sadness and doom. It, it's really more a conversation around hope and prevention and healing. And I, I think that that's why we're both here, right? And why we do the work we do, because you can heal from mold. You can prevent mold toxicity, which means you can prevent a whole lot of disease. And, you know, a big part of my pediatric practice is I, I'm the mold sniffer that that's like sniffing out mold in the families. And, you know, in two or three cases, we have been able to like catch it super early when the kids were getting exposed early, early on. And before they started developing any kind of serious issues, like sure. took care of it, detoxed it. And, I, I have a feeling, at least in two cases, we may have prevented what would have turned into autism because the child was starting to develop a lot of those early markers and then, yeah. of course, got redirected. So I just want to set the stage and kind of the intention that th- this is a conversation about healing and positivity and, and really optimizing health and vitality and preventing bad things from happening. Yeah. Not- we should all be living in fear. Absolutely. It's a big, scary world. and There's a lot of scary things. And you can choose to focus on that. And you're going to live in a life of fear, or you can choose to focus or not on that. And they're both options. And so, um, but also at the same time, it's not to put your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist, but yeah. breathing clean air, getting your ducts clean, doing air purifiers, ozoners, foggers, you know, some of those things. But, but yeah, there's a lot that you can do to prevent. And even from a treatment standpoint, I think that the prognosis is often good if we catch these things early in detoxification strategies. So what are some of the highlight things that you see kid-wise? Meaning, like, again, cases that come into your office. Like, if, if a kid like me was a decent student but just hyperactive, is it on your radar or is it something that's just on your radar for everybody that walks in? Or on the, again, the people can't see me, I guess, on the audio call, but it, on the spectrum of childhood diseases, you're not just looking at the extreme autism pans pandas what about things like bedwetting or oppositional defiance or or some hyperactivity what all brings mold on your radar if a kid walks into your practice uh so you know i i approach things from more of a system standpoint and I, i kind of tell families like i'm not interested in the diagnosis of your kid i'm interested in understanding why they're experiencing things the way they do so when when you shift that and and then you look at it from the perspective of like what does mold do to the physiology right so the first thing mold is really fantastic at is just mucking up the mitochondria right mm. it just disrupts metabolism it disrupts mitochondrial function and a lot of the time you just get these kids who are just fatigued right their vitality and my my question that I've I've learned to ask is how is your child's vitality 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of parents are like, you know what? My child's vitality is just not good. Yeah. And through that, you know, there's irritability. The, con- the child has constant meltdowns. They're just tired. They try to run for a little bit. They get pooped out. They they get eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours of sleep, but they wake up tired in the mornings. And then they're still tired during the days. And it's just, you could see it in the child. They just do not feel good. Their vitality mm-hmm. is drained. So that that's kind of my first, like radar thing like a child who just has outstanding vitality and they're just oozing energy and joy and happiness and health mold is probably not on my radar as much unless there's other odd things happening the second thing is how is your immune system functioning because mycotoxins happen to be really good at disrupting the immune system right on one hand they trigger this weird allergy response right high histamine intense at mass cell activity, constant mucus, constant infections, you know, mucus buildup, sinus problems, tonsillar uh, enlargement, adenoid enlargement. And there, there are studies published that have demonstrated that kids who live in damp environments have larger tonsils. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of these things, and, and you had mentioned, you know, in, in your past, like, it, it's shocking to me that at nine months, you had ear tubes, but like, if if those kinds of things start creeping up or the kid who's just getting sick over and over and over again, mold also creeps up, like goes up on my radar. Because yeah. to me, like unless a kid is eating just the worst diet in the world, right? Sugar and soda and gluten and dairy and candy, like their diet is a wreck. Like outside of a scenario like that, a child's immune system should be pretty good. Yeah. And if a child is eating well, but their immune system is acting weird, then that also begs the question of, okay, so why is this child's vitality low? Why is this child's immune system misbehaving? Then the next thing for me is as an extension of that mast cell, right? So mold and mold toxins can trigger mast cells, which are kind of the sentinels of our immune system, right? And they're constantly scouring the environment and environment within our body to make sure everything is cool. And when it's not, they sound the alarm and these mast cells start dumping out a whole lot of histamine. Now, what most people don't realize is that histamine is a neuromodulator, right? Mm -hmm. It it has neuroactive properties. It's a biological amine like dopamine, histamine, closely related. Yeah. Yeah. So it changes exactly that. It changes all of the catecholamines, right? Norepinephrine, dopamine so forth. It changes cortisol levels. So the first thing is you get weird patterns of sleep disruption. And these kids that are up until three o'clock in the morning, completely, you know, wired awake, but they haven't had any coffee or anything to disrupt their sleep. That's the effect of histamine. The other thing that that's really unique about histamine is that it starts modulating the vestibular response and ultimately our sensory pathways. And how that shows up are these kids that just they can't sit still, right? Yeah, because, they stim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you think about it, our middle ear, our, our vestibular system, is part of our balance and control. When the vestibular system starts getting wonky because of histamine, and this has all been documented in the literature, that change in that balance response of the body or brain actually causes these kids to just be constantly moving. And what they're doing is actually trying to activate that middle ear part of their brain to actually kind of rebalance their nervous system. Mm -hmm. 
And then along with that, these kids have weird other sensory issues. You know, it's too loud. It's too loud. They have auditory sensitivity. They can't tolerate crowded spaces. They start having weird issues with processing of sound information. So a lot of times it shows up as a learning disability where the teacher is talking, but like four other kids are distracting the kids. So this kid can't process anything because their brain can't focus on the teacher. They have clothing issues where they can't wear clothing or tags bother them. Olfactory, like their sense of smell gets distorted. And we see this a lot in some of the PANS kids in autism. So when, when you get this weird pattern of hyperactivity and these kids are having odd sensory findings, along with the low vitality and possibly the immune distortions. Like for me, like mold just goes to the top of the list. Yeah, and exactly. That could be pans and pandas, autism, ADHD, right? Once once you kind of reconfigure it, you're like, oh, that kind of looks like a lot of these things. Or or even just to throw out a couple other things, but like if a kid is constipated, then I'm thinking brain, gut brain. Or another one that I know that you're familiar with, but I had his family call me one time and they said, our son is peeing. No, it was our son is drinking 500 ounces of water a day. I said, mold. You know, and we know this through Shoemaker and ADH and things like that as far as pituitary. But sure enough, it was mold. There was mold all throughout their house. They said, we thought he had type 1, type 2 diabetes. We were checking his blood sugar. I said, this is mold, 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 mold until proven otherwise. And then sure enough, they had it all throughout their house. Um, but yeah, it's neuro. So it's not, a, it, it's, it's interesting. Now, I deal with a lot of those cases in my practice of histamine and vestibular dysfunction and neuroinflammatory neurodegenerative cases, whether it be diagnosed MS or it just be symptomatic things like vestibular dysfunction. But it is interesting to see it in a kid because kids can't vocalize it as well. It just, it shows up in their behavior. And another one that I, I know that you're aware of too, but I, just mold will, mycotoxins will block glutamate clearance in the microglia. So you get this buildup of glutamate and it's just like my son, for example, Pejman, I don't think he has a lot of mycotoxin issues, but a lot of people have seen this with their kids. He's highly, he, he it's noticeable when he eats red food dyes. So mm -hmm. that's a NMDA receptor, neuroexcitation. I think of that in the same context of these GABA glutamate imbalances. But a lot of times the kids can't say, boy, I feel anxious or I feel jittery. They just bounce off the walls or do different things behaviorally. Uh, what about another one that I just want your opinion on, because this is a, an opinion of mine, is that if a lot of times kids can't vocalize this that well, if a kid comes to me and they say stomach aches, I'm thinking mycotoxins. What about you, just in, as general as abdominal, or is that something you see a lot? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, just digestive problems as a whole. Like, yeah, right. It, it was, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't figure out why some of the kids had just these gnarly persistent digestive problems, right? You do the gluten-free, dairy-free, put them on colostrum, put them on probiotics, put them on this, put them on that, and their guts were still a mess. Mm -hmm. And that's when all of a sudden I'm like, holy cow, like the, these mycotoxins are just completely destroying the gastrointestinal tract, right? They destroy, they disrupt the microbiome, they disrupt the microbiome, they disrupt mm -hmm. gut integrity, and you get all of that. And yeah, like, Digestive problems of all kind, including abdominal pain, just whoop, pop yeah. to the top of the list. Yeah, and then and then open the gateway for autoimmunity and other things that can come down the road. But yeah, so all these things are kind of kind of on our on your radar. So then, for you in a systems based approach to things, and let's say that we're specifically looking for mold and mycotoxins, then what are your next steps? Because and we can even talk about this of like the difference between colonization 
which is mold living in your body. So mold colonies that have colonized your sinuses or your gut versus mycotoxins. What's your next step or what are your favorite labs or favorite things that you do to kind of confirm this um, in, a, in, a, in a kid that's coming in with X, Y, or Z symptom? So I, I, I love the question. And this, this is where I've kind of, uh, if you want to say, pushed back a little bit against my community. So, I mean, right now in the mold community, the biggest tool that people use are the urinary mycotoxins, right? And basically, we're just checking the urine to see if urine mold toxins are present. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the data of where these urinary mycotoxins were first utilized, it was actually in parts of the developing world looking at foodborne mycotoxin burdens mm -hmm. and like a lot of the literature is actually on food exposure to mycotoxins yeah. for this and and a lot of the literature period is in food because it's in food that's fed to agriculture because a lot of it comes mm -hmm. out of the ag mm -hmm. world really but but yeah so go on sorry so you know early on i was taught to use them and i still use them uh i, I think your your mycotoxins definitely have their place but one of the things that I saw, at least in the kids, and I don't treat any adults, so just take what I say for little people only. But what I started realizing in a lot of the kids that I was testing is I would also, on top of having food contamination mucking up the results, I also saw that a lot of the kids would have normal looking profiles where like I look at the urine, I'm like, God, this doesn't look to be too bad. Maybe it's not mold toxicity. And then the family checks their home anyways. And all of a sudden it's like horrific amounts of mold where like the inspector, like run of the mill inspector, not, not like, you know, super holistic person, run of the mill mold inspector that usually miss mold. Like that inspector is like, this house is so contaminated. You need to leave. It is not safe to live here. And after like two or three cases of that plus a normal looking urine test that's when i'm like eh, maybe i need to be looking at other options yeah um, I, I don't know do, what what are your favorites uh, i mean I'll share I, mine. I do i do urine i don't do the blood antibodies but i also combine it with o and i combine it with um a lot of times igg responses to different molds i don't do the micro the antibodies to the mycotoxins like the my myco lab is often but I like a combo approach because I think that a lot of times the, the mycotoxin test is like a, just a cherry on top or just to persuade or convince somebody that it's mold. Because when they see it on a lab, it's like, hey, told you so. And I'm not saying that in a, in a rude way, you know, but just to confirm if somebody's not that on board with the fact that it might be mold. But I use a variety of different um, tests, but I do still use urine and I use O and I use both, but I use real time. I use Vibrant. I use uh, Great Plains, Mosaic. So I use different labs and different testing modalities, but now tell me what's your favorite. <laughs> so, I, I like to layer it too, because uh, like, for instance, with the organic acids, a lot of times I, I like to see where the metabolic functioning of these kids are. Exactly. Some of those yeah. kids that are like their markers, like their mitochondrial markers, their other metabolic markers are just way off the charts. They, yeah, like, they Those are. are the kids that I'm mentally prepared for like, okay, this is going to be a, a slow process, but and, you know, over time, know. Ahead, in the sorry. kids, I actually found that the the antibodies, the IgG antibodies yeah, okay. against the molds to be 
super, super reliable, meaning about 80% accuracy in terms of picking up. And to, the cool thing is the antibodies uh, to molds or to mycotoxins. So both. Okay. Uh, I, I like the the antibodies to mycotoxins because they're more specific. Uh-huh. But it's also a four hundred dollar test, and yeah. it turns yeah. out that Quest Diagnostics will actually do IgG antibodies against Aspergillus, Penicillium, Cladosporium through insurance. Oh, nice! So what I've started doing is actually just I, I do you know lab screenings on most of the kids that come in, minus the little little ones that we don't want to poke, and I just tack that on. And there's a company called Alatest that'll also do it yeah. for, I mean, if you can do individual ones for 10 bucks each. So for like 50 bucks, you can get a pretty decent read. Okay. And with not a whole lot of money, you can actually start picking up if if there's a reaction. And the immune reactivity I found to actually be pretty reliable. Okay, cool. Because I use the Cyrex Array 12, but it's expensive. I and mean, it's really expensive. But it's it's looking at all those pathogens. Now, if you're doing a screening like that, are you also throwing on? Lyme titers or strep or any of these other infections or mycoplasma or some of these, because some of these are common in water damaged buildings, but are you doing a whole infectious panel or are you specifically looking for mold or does it, is it case by case? So I I don't trust the Lyme panel for the regular lab because yeah, like like if my Western suspicion is there, yeah, I, usually I go with one of the private companies because yeah. they do a better job. Uh-huh. I, I do for any kid with aggression, anxiety, I definitely check them for strep titers mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure because if they're if they've got strep on board, that's that's a whole other animal that we need to take care of. You know, I used to check mycoplasma and HHV6 and you know, a lot of these other viruses, EBV. And then I got to a point where I'm like, well, holy cow, like every single kid that I'm testing is positive. Like literally after, I don't know, 30, 40 cases, I I got to a point where I'm like, well, my God, like every single one of these kids are pretty much positive all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started stepping back and, you know, I was talking to Neil Nathan. I'm like, Neil, like all these kids are positive. And he's like, yeah, because they're immune compromised and they can't handle all, all of these infections that, you know, pretty much like all of us have had mycoplasma, right? right? All of us have been exposed to EBV. Probably most of us have been exposed to HHV6. Like these are common infectious agents that the entire world has seen, except mm-hmm. healthy immune systems can just put these, you know, microbes and viruses in check. Immune system falls apart. You've got a free for all. That's exactly my opinion, too. I always tell people, you know, EBV is obviously very famous, and people come in and say, oh, I have EBV. I say, well, great, you're like 90% of the world. And, but what turned it on? What allowed it to reactivate and, you know, mold with just some of its immune suppressions? And it's I'm oversimplifying, but like Th1 and goes down, Th2 goes up, and that allows, that's one of the vir- that's one of the mold's defense mechanisms because that's what kills mold. But then that allows viruses to reactivate. Or even if somebody comes to me with Lyme, I mean, how many people... You know, I see adults, but how many people have put 20 grand into a year's worth of antibiotics and not gotten well? And if somebody comes to me with Lyme, I think, where's the mold? And again, not to sound overly simplistic or overly biased, but that's just one of my thoughts along with many of the others. But I think the same thing with just general pathogen burden or if somebody's getting sick all the time, what is the root cause that's causing the immune dysfunction? So let's say you run, well, let's say before we talk about any treatment or any next steps, then what is your protocol or next steps or advice 
for people for their home. And and before you answer, are you all local for your practice space or like even your your social media and Instagram following? What if somebody's not in California? Where are you recommending, or do you have somebody that's local for you? Because even for me, I'll just say big picture. I, I my practice is about half and half. I'd say half local, half international, nationwide, et cetera. So the local people, I've got a great testing guy. He was trained by somebody who I trust and he's very, very knowledgeable. And he spends an average of three or four hours at each home, gives a long, extensive write-up. And just not to say that we always find everything, but he he's really good at sniffing things out. But what are your recommendations for people or let's say even again i don't mean to throw out too many questions but if they live in let's say a rural area where they don't have good testing what are their options as far as dust samples mold plates what are your opinions on some of those things or what do you do uh, i don't I love like the ten, question i don't uh, like ten, it's like 10 questions so i apologize <laughs> i have a tendency to do that but yeah but well no i mean i think this is a perfect segue because for me, the next step, and this is part of what I've been teaching some of the docs that I'm working with, is once you've I, I, once you suspect that mold is at play, the next question is where where did it come from? Yeah. And for me, the first step is is this past exposure, you know, because you have families that have moved, and you know, I have a bunch of families that are like, yep, from the you know up until a year and a half ago, we were living in mold and we moved. And now we're in this place, or is there active exposure? Yeah, and it, but it, and it's be... that's probably way harder or uh, like different in your situation because if somebody's only six, eight years old, they haven't lived that many places. But I see people that are 50, 60, and it's like, boy, this could have come from your, you know, your college dorm room and things that they accumulate. But you're figuring out is it past or isn't present, is is was your point. But yeah, you're saying, uh, keep going. Sorry, no, uh, uh in, in through that. You know, one of the things that I've seen, at least in the, in the kids that I work with, is they do remarkably well when I'm able to control the environment. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, yeah, that, the conversation of what do you do? And it's not like you need to live in a sterile environment. I, I, I don't think that's even possible. Like, just to give you an example, it turns out that we actually had mold in our house and we we fully remodeled the house like we thought we had got everything. It turns out that this is freaking crazy that the. the the my two the, the two bedrooms that my kids sleep in it turns out that the hallway literally right in between which is the only area we didn't remodel like drywall was from before and we had the house inspected it turns out that literally right there there was a whole patch of mold from a prior roof leak that had been missed and early on like i wasn't aware of this and i wasn't aware of like these possibilities so Long story short, my daughter ended up having like eczema and she she had a whole bunch of sensory issues which have gotten better. My little guy had a year and a half of chronic diarrhea with a whole bunch of hyperactivity that I had to work through. So long story short, like we remediated and there, I still think there's mold, which is a long way of saying you can never have a perfectly sterile environment. Or perfect Every time you walk in from outside, you could be bringing spores yeah. in. Yeah. But you just need to clean it off. And that, that that's kind of my, you know, goal, like to have the environment clean enough where the child's immune system can chill out and their body is able to finally detox. Because I, I don't know about you, and I'd love to hear your take. Like for me, I find it really hard to be able to at least detox the kids that I work with when they're in the midst of tons of exposure because sure. their immune systems and their guts are just constantly reacting and 
you know, I've had kids where I gave them like literally, it's crazy to say this, but literally 10 drops of bentonite clay and they can handle 10 drops. If we gave them 12 drops, they would fall apart. Yeah. And oh, yeah. It, it was one of those things where it's like, well, gosh, we're not going to get very far like this. Um, so w- what do you think? I mean, I, th- I, I agree with every single thing that you've said. I First off, we talked about this a little bit off air that, you know, there are people in the mold world that say that you have to leave with nothing but your credit card and sell all your belongings. And I just haven't seen that clinically. I'm sure that's worked for some people. And I've seen people that have done that. But I've seen people get well from just finding the source and cleaning it up. And like you said, it's not to say that we've always got it all or that the house is mold free, but I drew before we started the bucket theory. And my theory is that it's oversimplification. Everybody talks about the bucket and toxicity. I'm not, it's not an original theory, but it's if the bucket is emptying faster than it's filling, you're going to see people move in a better direction. So a lot of times we can tell if somebody's still exposed or sometimes I'll tell people too, I'll tell people, hey, your bucket is emptying. You're getting better. But I don't think it's emptying as fast as I would expect. I'm still suspicious that you're exposed somewhere. But I think if the exposure is less than the elimination, you're going to move in a healthier direction. Now, what do you do? I got two questions again. But first off, for your clients and patients, what do you have them do as far as testing or mold plates or dust samples or envirobiomics or different, you know, outlets that are out there. And then my other question is, uh, I I should save it, but what do you do in your house? Because you're talking about your kids, you talk about some issues, you talk about how it's never mold free. Um, But what are your, again, recommendations? Or if somebody's listening to this and let's say they're in, you know, South Carolina and they're like, there's nobody around me. How, what do I do? I'll tell you too, because I know you're going to ask me. My answer is like, whatever we can, you know? So if there's no testing, then, then like, I'm not a fan of the mold plates, but I think they're better than nothing. I think they can at least lead you to the next steps, but I'd rather see a tester come in. I'd rather see lab values, but I do think that the plates can serve value. I don't do as much ERMI hurts me dust sample testing because locally I've got my, my guy, but I have worked with a ton of those samples, but what's, what's your preferred method for testing? So, you know, I used, I still like the mold plates, but I, I like them more to figure out where the problem is. Exactly. Yeah. They can't work with someone. Yeah. Because at times I found that unless the family like puts it in the right spot, because the mold plates are like mold spore has to land in the plate, right? For it to grow, to show it. And we had a few times where like they did a bunch of plates and everything looked fine. And then it turns out that they had a problem because where they put the plate was not in the right. And location. some molds are very heavy. They don't, they're mm-hmm. not easily airborne and things like that, but so there can be missing things, but yeah, you were saying. Yeah. So I've actually become a big fan of the Ermi. Have you? Uh, yeah. Now, now the, the thing that that's interesting about the Ermi is that there's this wonderful guy named Mike Schrantz that that's a friend and mentor of mine that helped me learn how to actually read the reports, meaning I don't rely on the number because the number can be misleading. There have been times like the number is super high, but it turns out they didn't have a problem. And there have been times that the actual you know calculated number, the, the score was low and there was a problem. So what Mike taught me to do in this is kind of a poor man's way of just kind of assessing was to actually look for counts of specific molds. Like for instance, if you've got 
big scary levels of stachybotrys and ketomium and like aspergillus versicolor, which these are all very water loving molds, right? They don't grow in outside environments. They don't grow in natural environments. They only grow if there's high prolonged levels of high humidity, typically in indoor environments. So if these bad actors start showing up on the ermi, that's when I say, oh, shoot, this, this doesn't look pretty. And I, I never, you know, pretend to actually know enough to be like, no, for sure you guys have mold. That's when I say, you know what, this doesn't look pretty to me. Here are some really smart people that actually know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, talk to them. And God bless these folks at ISEAI. Uh, their list of IEPs, you know, have been so these are indoor environmental professionals. And what I do is I do we do the ERMI, we kind of take a look. And usually by then I've got my lab test back and my like mold radar is is either up or down. And then from there, if if they have someone locally who's really good, then that's great. Most people don't. And that's where I rely on these, you know, remote uh experts because they can you know go through the ermi go through the home walk people through things uh there's we inspect uh mm -hmm. they tend to be a little pricey which is sometimes you know the downside but but they're they not far from your area i know they're nationwide too but i think they're they're california based are yeah. they close to you or are they they, they are they are and I, i've i've definitely used them for some of the more complicated cases and they've been awesome yeah but th there are resources you just need to get clever and exactly and, figure and, out how to use them. and i would say just to echo what you said but we inspect from everything that i've heard and know is great but not everybody financially is at that ballpark so i that's where i look for other solutions if somebody says well i don't have that much or then the plates come in or an ermi or do you ever do an Emma test? Are you a fan of Emma tests at all? I am. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around like how useful it is. Like, and it, it, it all comes down to the cost, right? For that extra $150, mm. $160, like, is that information necessarily game changing? And I've I've kind of started steering away from it because mm -hmm. I'm finding that just the Ermi itself tends to give enough information now the actinos and you know the endotoxins and all yeah. of those things like that's an area that i'm still kind of scratching my head around i think everybody is it's like the, <laughs> the 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 new frontier in the mold world because it's like oh crap these aren't going to show up on a plate or on a fungal test if they're all you're looking for is fungus then you're not going to find bacteria yeah yeah but it's still water damaged buildings and you might find clues for that but my my take on the Emma, I'm in the same ballpark. I've ran a, a handful of them, but it's oftentimes a price point. But I've had a few people that want to test like their work environment or things like that. They don't want to sniff out every corner and every source. They just want to know, am I being exposed at work? Like I had this one person, she's she has MS. And I said, where do you work? She said, I work in a cave. She said, it's the size of two football fields and it houses all the old social security documents. And I said, that sounds moldy and so she did a dust sample and the ochre toxins off the charts and so she quit and i didn't tell her that she had to but it's like once the evidence was put in front of her she made in my opinion a good decision but i do think there's value and i think that you're in the same ballpark vision that there's good value in a lot of these things but it's like what's the bang for the buck and what's the certain application and we all get our favorites but uh it's 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 very customize i would say but that i'm not as versed on the ermi as many mold experts are 
Uh, and I think it's because I lean heavily on my testing guy that we refer people out to, but that is, that is good. So then I, I, my next two questions, which are similar, of course, I always got to ask two, but they're related. But what do you do in your house? And, and, and the other question is then what does somebody do in their house? And I'll say that I, I have a podcast where I talk about this. There's three levels to this. One is professional remediation. So that is like you've got to call somebody and they got to do the work and blah, blah, blah. So that might, we might not need to expand on that much. The second one is what can we do DIY? And then the third one is maintain and prevent. So I think that ties back into what you've done in your home. Of You might have had to do something about some of that mold that you found. But what do you do for just breathing clean air? Because that's also when you talk about LPS, you talk about actinomycetes, you talk about VOCs. You know, my office had a big formaldehyde issue. Took me two years to find it. I knew something was environmental, and I'm a mold guy. I thought it's gotta be mold. I had this old. I had this found this HVAC filter that had never been changed. This thing was filled with dust. I said, "Oh, boom! I found it. I did an Emma on it. There's zero mycotoxins in it." So, like, crap. What was it? And it was formaldehyde. It was formaldehyde from carpet. But my point is that I'm just a fan of breathing clean air. There's yeah. other sources of toxicity, and it's not always you got to find what they all are, but let's just what can we do to breathe clean air? So what do you do in your home? What do you do, uh, and what do you recommend people do? So what we well, are, are you open to talking about filtration as, as oh, kind yeah. of a segue into this? Oh, yeah. So absolutely. You know, everyone is in the bandwagon of HEPA filtration and whether, you know, you do simple HEPA, simple HEPA or you get fancy like IQ Air, Air Doctors, you know, a lot of these, you know, ex more expensive, nice filtration units. And, you know, part of what, what kind of really drew me into this conversation was I got to a point where I started realizing like, well, holy cow, like not everyone can remediate, Right. I mean, there there are people that can, and there there are people who have the ability to because one, they own their home, right, and two, they've got the money to be able to do it and, and take care of it. But you've got a whole lot of people that that are renting, and they have landlords that are not necessarily that concerned about their well being, right? Uh, you've got people who own, but they don't have $50,000. And a lot of times insurance doesn't pay for remediation. So, you know, I, I kind of ran into this problem head on because a lot of people would, were reaching out to me uh, on social media and elsewhere like, hey, like th this is fine and dandy, but I can't remediate, you know, or I'm renting and my landlord certainly doesn't even want to hear the M word. And if if I mention it, they're going to say, you know, you're welcome to leave and there's no other place for me to rent. So it's either we move out of our area and pull our kid out of school and literally like relocate our entire family, which we can't do or, or we have to stay put. What do we do? And th this is where I started, like, then saying, well, okay, like, all, all of these wonderful people that I know and trust, I was like, okay, what do we do? And they're like, well, filtration. And then I started, like, paying attention to what the families were telling me, which was, yeah, but we're running HEPA filters. And some of them had, like, I mean, believe it or not, they had, like, one of those big IQ airs in, like, every room. And the kids were still having a lot of symptoms and issues and allergies and reactivity. And especially with the kids that I work with, you know, 
when the exposure goes down, their nervous systems calm down, their sensory issues calm down, the anxiety calms down, the aggression, the irritability calms down. And I use that as a bellwether to understand like how much exposure is still happening or not. Mm. And if my supplements are working and their immune systems and nervous systems are chilling out, that's a sign that there probably isn't a ton of exposure. Whereas if I give them some supplements, some anti-inflammatories, and they're still raging, they're still exploding, the anxiety is off the charts, chances are there's still exposure. And where I'm going with this is... You know, so I, I I started like asking, well, why is this? Why is HEPA not working? Like, because it should work, right? Like mm-hmm. HEPA filtration should be able to capture mold and mold, mold toxins, and you know, down to 0.1 microns and blah blah blah. And so that took us down this road of me poking around until I found this brilliant environmentalist named Carl Grimes. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh. G- genius like person who who just is one of these people that has like more information in his head than you know I could ever store Love and that. I started like drilling into uh, Carl it's like Carl why is HEPA not working what is it about the filtration because it should work right it should work it should capture these mold toxins everything should be fine why is it not working and we got into this weird conversation around kind of the physical behavior of mold toxins in particular. Mm-hmm. And long story short, what it really came down to is for any room, let's say larger than a 10 by 20 room. So you, you've got like a decent sized living room, for instance, if there's any kind of heavy contamination, a regular HEPA filter, even the IQ airs, air doctors, you know, that's like taking a little fire hose to, to your house fire and wondering why it's not working because the amount of air scrubbing you need to do. And I don't know if you're familiar with CFMs and the cubic feet per minute. So the CFM filtration and air scrubbing has to go into like the 1,500 range, which is like air scrubber. Like, Yeah, because I have an air scrubber, but it's like 700, 800. It's one of the less expensive ones. It's not one of the higher volume commercial ones. But yeah, so I know just know that mine's obviously too weak. (laughs) But like even at that like 700 CFM, it's it's not quiet, right? Oh, it's really loud. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you can put it in your bedroom and go to sleep with it, right? Yeah, I usually tell people like the downside is you can't, you're not going to be able to crank it all the way because it will be too loud. So when you leave, you can do that. But it's, yeah. Yeah, so that's really what it boiled down to that unless you crank these filters on super high or you get into like air scrubber territory, mm-hmm. it turns out you're not scrubbing enough air to actually move, remove these particulates out of the air, which is why the exposure was happening. Okay. And, you know, that then took me like, well, okay, well, if it's not realistic for people to run air scrubbers in their house, because those things are insanely loud and no one in their right mind can live with that. Uh, then what's the option? And that that's when I started getting into the world of ionization. Boom. Awesome. I just got into that world. <laughs> and I was going to ask you your opinion on it because I learned about it from Don Dennis. I'm sure you know, I don't know if you know the name Don Dennis, but he said it's the best thing that he's ever used. So I bought an ultimatum and I just got it and I'm, it's running, it's five feet away from me right now, right next to my Austin air purifier. But so tell me more because I'm I'm intrigued, but I just like literally went in on his recommendation, but Tell me more. 
So he he was the guy that actually opened my eyes. He okay. he, he was doing a talk with uh, Neil's group. Exactly. And, I was at know, that my... seminar, and now that oh. seminar, <laughs> was it was it earlier this year? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I was at that, but now that video is available on YouTube. So I'm sending that video. I probably send it to 30, 30 patients and say, "Hey, watch this video," because he goes through all those CT scans and things like that. But I think that is fascinating. We've always carried EC3 products, but yeah. So that's when I got the ultimatum. So keep going. Cool. So I, I ended up going a little crazy and started actually not just pulling the research on ionization, but actually like hooking up and connecting with the researchers that published the papers Okay. And, and started talking to them about like, because in the mold world right now, in our community, there's a strong bias against ionization. In yeah. All and, the, and against ozone, ozonation too. But I, and I think those two things are kind of related, but maybe not completely as far as, but keep going, I guess. So they're actually not. Okay. So there are ionizers that produce a ton of ozone, which uh -huh. is not good for us. Right. We're actually in the environment, right? You don't want to breathe ozone. Like uh -huh. having ozone scrub things and then be gone when you're when you're back. That's that's one story. But that's how I'll run use a it. unit that's spewing out ozone while you're in it. Not a great idea. Bad, yeah. The the unit that you're referring to, uh, and I'll actually kind of give you a hack. Uh, is it actually has this unit from this company called GPS Air, and they're actually producing units for like central air conditioning units. So that ultimatum, basically, they took the unit that typically goes in like a four ton air conditioning unit and put it in a fan. Mm -hmm. And that unit actually produces no ozone or like less than five parts per billion, which is basically negligible. And that amount of ion that gets pumped out in the environment actually happens to be really good at re eliminating small particulates. So okay. mycotoxins, mold spores, things that are like 0.1 microns, 1 microns, it turns out that ionization is fantastic for getting these little particulates to kind of stick together and then drop to the ground or ultimately get picked up by filtration. And I've got to tell you, 90% of my families have really come to love these units Good. because they work. Because I'm always, I try things before I recommend them. And, you know, the, the these ionizers don't have a small price tag. You know, they're pricey. Um, but that's great to hear because I wouldn't say that I've noticed anything. But I just bought it. I've been running it. And, I, and I'll I run it at the office. I'll take it home at night, run it at home, and then bring it back and things like that. But I also still run. Austin Air. Now, let me ask you another question about that, too. Is, do, is your opinion that still dead mold spores, dead inactivated micro, microtoxins still need to be HEPAVAC, still need to be wiped up? I mean, there could still be irritable and noxious to the system, would you say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because at least what I've been taught and what I've seen is, I mean, you don't need like active moisture to, to have a mold problem. Right. Okay. If there was a historical contamination, like in our house, like we we moved in seven years ago and redid the roof, redid everything. And that area of contamination was still seeping out mycotoxins and probably the volatile compounds that went with it. Yeah. But there was a constant contamination that was taking place, even though, you know, obviously the molds themselves were dead. And if your immune system is mounted an antibody response to that, it's still going to recognize that if it's present in your system. My house... <laughs> this will make you know the we inspect guys it'll make their skin crawl my house is built in 1856 it's pre-civil war and so one of when i had it investigated and inspected 
one of the sources was an old leak. It was old mold, but I still had it remediated and cleaned up. But yeah, so that's great to hear about the ionization. I'm still, my jury's still out, but that might have, you know, solved the verdict or, but I, I still, again, bang for the buck is a question mark that I still have with that, but that's great to hear. Now, let's say about what we talked about. Do you feel like ozone has a value? Now, I agree with you completely that you don't want to breathe ozone, but I will use an ozone machine and because we lend this stuff out to people or rent it to people when they're trying to solve this problem because I have a HEPAVAC and I have an air scrubber and I have a fogger and I have an ozone machine and that's kind of our kit that we we give people. And then they can do EC3 candles or EC3 wipes as far as follow-up and we sell all that stuff. But what's your take on fogging or ozoning and some of those other strategies? Because all of them, get bad mouthed in our field. And I'm not to say that any one of them is going to be your end all be all and like your problem solved just because you fogged your basement. But I still think there's value in it. What's your opinion of those treatment things? So, you know, over time, I've actually found less and less need to go there. Okay. Uh, and here's why. Um, so when you, so what I recommend is for families to declutter clean everything like once a week and we inspect has this wonderful document like a deep cleaning document that i suggest out where basically it's once a week hepa vacuum just wipe everything down walls you know everything that you can so you decontaminate you've got hepa filters just simple hepa filters like hundred dollar target you know whirlpool kind of stuff but then when you add ionization to that what that does is it actually creates not just a uh, clearance of the particulates. It turns out, I, I just came to learn this, that ions, these, these ions, positive and negative ions, actually can disrupt bacterial cell membranes. So unicellular organisms, not us. It actually changes the charge on the membrane of these microbes and actually causes their cell membranes to start getting distorted and starts creating a antimicrobial effect within the environment. We're not sure how it, it behaves on molds. And obviously, the ions need to penetrate into the wall. So for, you know, contamination that's deep in the wall, probably not such a good thing. But there, there is this unique effect that happens that I think is more than just a simple purification where the air itself is cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to have a weird smell where I can't smell like, like my wife can smell like, hey, do you smell the oregano in the food? I'm like, no. Uh, I think it tastes good, but like I oh. can't smell. So yeah. I can't smell I, like I, I had zero sense of smell for over 10 years. And now it's like some days it will be zero. It's like 50, 50, 75, 25. But I had no sense of smell for many for over a decade. And now I've been through my mold detoxification and through other things. I've been able to nurse that back. But anyway, <laughs> it might, might be similar, but even worse than yours. <laughs> well, he, here's the funny thing. Uh, it probably is similar. But for me, for whatever weird reason, I can smell volatile compounds. Ah. Like there's a tiny natural gas leak. Like I can smell it from like a mile away. I walk into a house instantly. I can smell that musty smell. And in our house, like even though we remediated, we like tore up as much as we could find, like literally like we had them going wherever they can find. There was still this musty smell afterwards. And it was driving me nuts because I know my kids were getting exposed to it. Once we started running the ionization, like that musty smell is gone. Okay, cool. So I think it, it does more than just removes the particulates of the mold and mold toxins. I think it also actually 
is able to clear some of these volatile compounds. And then when you add the filtration, you know, the HEPA filtration to it, that is further clearing these things because now even the mold toxins that were hard to filter out because they're clumping together, they actually become larger particulates that are now easier to filter out. Uh, one little hack. So I don't know if you know this, but Ultimatum, which sells these units for, I think, 1500 bucks, 1400 bucks. Yep. If you actually, call, they're 1800 on the website, but you got to call to get the 1500 <laughs> So it turns out that uh, I, I hate to do this to them, but they actually buy their units from a company called IAP. And IAP is the company that actually manufactures it. And for any of your clients that are interested, uh, and you would probably have to refer them, they can actually buy it directly from IAP for about 650 bucks. Ah, okay, good. Uh, so I'll, I'll be happy to share that resource. But this company has been fantastic. They're just the nicest, nicest people. And I have like no affiliation. I don't get a dollar for saying this, but they're just good, good people that are selling a good product. And shoot, if you can get something for six, 700 bucks instead of 1400 bucks, you know, not bad. Heck yeah. You know, my wife just said, she said, you should get another one of these. I said, it was 1500 bucks. Do you still think I should get another one? And she said, oh, maybe, maybe you should. <laughs> so, um, but I, to me, uh, breathing clean air has got no cost on it. And that's where my priority goes, you know, over other things. And obviously I'm, I'm different in that regard, but you know, I could talk with you all day about the air and I, I still have other questions for you, Pejman, but let's get back. I want to, what are some of your favorite? Cause I would like to keep this around an hour and not, I don't, we're going to be struggling too, but what are some of your favorite treatment things? Like talk about binders, talk about glutathione. I mean, I say those two things is kind of a foundation of most mold protocols, but what do you use in these kids? You know, you mentioned earlier drops of bentonite clay. So clays, charcoals, binders, you know, also in kids, I use a lot of powders and liquids because I see a lot of kids. And so we sometimes we just can't get in to do capsules. So what do you like to go for? Or what are some of your go-tos? And I, and I know everything's probably personalized, but maybe some of the most commonly used things in your mold uh, clientele or anti-inflammatories you mentioned too, but yeah. 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 So, you know, my first thing is I actually use anti-inflammatories because the first, my first goal is just to calm down the system of these kids. So I can, one, they could be more comfortable in life. They can, you know, be in school. They, they can stop having their tantrums, their big reactions, their hyperactivity. So I use a supplement called Mirica, okay. uh, which is PEA and luteolin, and then just a DAO enzyme. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times with that, I'll add some carnitine because the fatty acid oxidation, that part of metabolism is very, very common with these kids. So I give them a little boost in metabolism and energy while calming down their system. And that combination typically does really well. So that's kind of my first like go-to to just calm things down. I'll add some zinc, some vitamin D, you know, basic things to just get things set up. From there, you know, with the kids, I found that sometimes glutathione is a double-edged sword. Like okay. some of these kids that are really toxic, they herx when when I give totally. them glutathione. I would so, say the same with adults. I mean, I know you're a kid's population, but I see that very, very commonly that it's great if somebody tolerates it, but if they don't, it's not off. so cool. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sulforaphane, uh, broccoli extract is actually something I love because it it shifts, it, it starts getting the glutathione and antioxidant pathways up, right? It boosts NRF2. It does a lot of things to start modulating the 
innate antioxidant capacity in the body while supporting glutathione and, and detoxification within the liver. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll add some milk thistle and other things to slowly start supporting the liver and bile function. Do you tend to deliver those in a tincture since it's kids or is it depending on what they take or? Yeah. So the the first things I mentioned, they they come in capsules, but they're all really benign from a taste standpoint. So families can just dump in a little bit of juice, applesauce, you know, vegan pudding, whatever. And kids 95% of the time don't have a problem. Broccoli max or broccoli extract. The sulforaphane is also pretty benign. Okay. Most kids, 70%, take it easy breezy. Uh, and then the milk thistle usually comes in a tincture. And okay. the families just mix it up with something and, and give it to the kids to get get it in. Cool. What about, uh, I think you were still going, but what about binders? Yeah, so we were talking offline. And you know, a lot of people in the mold community try to match the binder to the toxin they're seeing in the urine. And to me, that that's like playing a game of whack-a-mole, right? It's like you whack one, one toxin and then the other one comes and then you whack that toxin and another one comes in. When you just stand back and just think about it, we know that when there is dampness and water contamination, you don't get one mold. I mean, it's it's just a big party, right? They invite their friends, they invite their cousins, and like you've just got a big raging party of every single mold you can possibly imagine, plus the bacteria, right? You've got endotoxins, all of these things there. So w- when I started just looking at it from that perspective, I just got to a place where I'm like, why am I doing this chase the the mold that I see in the urine? And we know urinary mycotoxin excretion changes over time, depending on what you're able to detox. And that's when I said, well, God, why don't I just make it simple for the families? Just do a combination. Mm-hmm. So what I typically do is bentonite is, is kind of my benchmark for everyone, foundation. Uh, sometimes, depending on the child and their texture issues, I'll use activated charcoal if I think they'll they'll do okay with that texture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've become a huge fan of humic and fulvic acid, mm-hmm. uh, especially this product uh, from Cellcore called HMET, no affiliation. Uh, because but that adds some of the sulforaphane and some of those other things just to their yeah. the biotoxin binder because that's the difference between and I'll use carboxy as well. It's a little, not as price economical, but it's already in the powder. But it's kind of the stronger version. But I love those humics and folics as well. Cool. Yeah, and, and you know those become kind of my first go tos. And then for some of the kids, especially if I see a lot of okra toxins or they have just intense, intense brain fog, which for me is partially a mitochondrial issue, but I've become a bigger, I've become more convinced that this is also part of this lipopolysaccharides, endotoxins. And it turns out cholestyramine, we think, happens to be pretty good, not just in terms of binding mycotoxins, especially okra toxin, but we think it may also be really good at binding the the bio the biotoxins, the endotoxins in the gut and pulling it out. And in some of the kids, like it's been really weird, like two to three weeks into using cholestyramine, all of a sudden, like their cognition and their processing and their ability to focus and their ability to like process information starts morphing in, in like a like weirdly good way where you know, the parents are like, holy cow, like my kid is learning in a way that they've never been able to learn before. And that's just the toxin load coming down. Mm, that's cool. Because for me, 
it's not in my scope to prescribe. So I, I'll, I only use the natural solutions, but I know of cholestyramine and Wellcall and the, the RX things that are available, but I just don't have much experience with it. But that's awesome. So seriously, we're at an hour. I could easily talk to you for another hour, but I want to respect your time, Peshmat, and I think I want to you know, put this out there. But seriously, I mean, if you're open to it, I'd love to schedule another one down the road. I think that even the people, I think I'm going to get a great response from this. I, I think that you and I are on the same wavelength. I mean, we use different tools, but the same same concepts and things like that. So just in closing, Pejman, anything else you'd like to add just to wrap up what we've talked about? I think we have reached over the hour mark, but we're we're pretty close to it. But take as much time as you want. But anything else with regards to kids with regards to mold and water damaged buildings with regards to detoxification or if it's just a big picture gem because another thing that i just love about you is you're just your philosophy of looking at these things of like what you just said with the binders is like that felt like you were reading my mind it's like that's mm-hmm. not the only mycotoxin in that body and it's not to say that this kid or this person doesn't have mercury or pesticides or other things that yeah. zeolite or bentonite or other binders. So that's why I'm also a fan of rotation because we mop up some toxins and we mop up some others, but the whole point is emptying that bucket. But what do you have to say just kind of in closing, maybe to, to wrap us up or anything else? Uh, so we, we are definitely on the same wavelength and, you know, it, it's fun to have this conversation. I would love to come back and, and just it's, share you know, more. It makes me feel smarter that I'm like, oh my gosh, I do some of the same things that this genius guy does. So like, I'm like very validated about the uh, ionization and some of the other things. But but yeah, but I, I do think that you're on the right track. And I just think the way you've uncovered some of these things is just kind of the natural evolution of even as a practitioner of like, hey, I just want to help these sick people get better. Um, but yeah, sorry. Uh, well, first of all, if if you talk to my wife, sometimes she'd be like, eh, I don't know about that genius part, <laughs> because there are, there are times uh, I, I do less than genius things. <laughs> uh, um, but to, to close, you know, here here's the reason why I have become so interested in the world of mold. And that is the the amount of good we can do to help people is really beyond I think most people's imagination. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this with your own eyes and that's why you're here and why you've gotten deep into the world of mold. But, you know, I've had kids who were not talking and not interacting and technically autistic. And then like three months later, morphing into a child that suddenly is going up to the dad and saying, I love you and making eye contact to the point where like mom and I are crying on the follow-up call. Kids that were having intense aggression, intense anxiety, intense OCD, motor tics suddenly calm down and dramatically better. And I mean, if if there's one thing I can, you know, kind of conclude with, it's there's so much good we can do. There's so many people we can help. There's so much just health and vitality and well-being we can bring into the world. And ultimately so much we could prevent. You know, so much yeah, suffering yeah. and disability we can prevent if we just have more of these conversations and, you know, thanks to you, get this information out so people become more aware of it. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, thank you for saying that. And I completely agree. And and I, I just one other thing to add to that is like, I think that, again, in the world world, there's this difference between causation and correlation. And I, while I think that mold is a causer, 
even if somebody disagrees with that, say, well, aren't we going to be better if we're going to breathe clean air? And aren't we going to be better if these toxins are removed? And aren't we going to be better if we reduce this exposure? And there is so much potential. So I appreciate just your purpose and your mission and just what you're doing. And, you know, especially just working with kids. I'm, I am I have kids. I'm passionate about working with kids. It's not my the target of my practice. So it's not typically the demographic that I attract. I tend to attract people that like really deep, high-level conversations because they hear my podcast and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to dive into this. But I think that's such a, such a just, I don't know, what, what could be more important than supporting the future of our, our world, Tajman? So I really respect you and, and just keep up the good work. Um, this podcast will be available anywhere else. I know that even practitioner-wise, I know you have a mentorship program. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on as far as that for any practitioners or where people can find you. I mentioned it at the beginning, holistic kids on Instagram, but any other places that you'd like to plug or anything else that you'd like to say from your own self-promotion standpoint? Sure. Uh, I, I appreciate the offer. Uh, we have a website called holistic minds also with a W and, and was really it holistic minds or holistic kids? Did I say it wrong with the it was no, no, holistic no? Holistic kids, kids or... is my okay. practice. Okay. So holistic kids is Instagram, and that's my private practice. Holistic minds is actually a AI portal that we're building to empower families and their providers to be able to get access to this kind of information more easily. Because I, I'm sure there are times that you have thought, like, how do I clone what I'm doing? How do I replicate what I'm mm. doing? How do I help more doctors be able to think and see the way that I do. And Holistic Minds is really, and there's an S to it because it's not just this, you know, brain of mine. It's it's ultimately how do we bring really great practitioners together to put their wisdom into technology that can then allow a lot of other providers to be able to quickly see and treat and learn how to work through things the way you and I do. Mm. Because at the end of the day, I mean, God, like, I'm sure you wish you could see every single sick person out there. And I wish I could do the same, right? And sure. that that would be a quick way for us to burn out and, and not be able to do much <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. And that that's where I realized technology could come in. And that's where AI can start really empowering more providers to comfortably get in there and do this work. Because right now, there there's this barrier where people feel intimidated to do this work, right? Because it's too complicated and I don't know. And there's a lot of training that's involved and not everyone has the energy or time to do that training. So a lot of great providers want to go out there to do the work. They just can't because of this barrier. And this technology is meant to remove that barrier so that Anyone, any family anywhere will have a practitioner, hopefully in their town, that they can go work with. And it could be, you know, a DO, a doctor of chiropractic, MD, naturopath. I mean, any provider who is legally able to provide care can actually utilize the system to help. And that's how I see us really changing things and in, in turning the tide of, of disease in this country. Yeah, well, that's cool. So that website is available now or it's in development? Uh, we're, we're launching the final pieces in the next few weeks. So that's the sweet. website is up. And for families that are interested, they can go click on the, the patient sign up. And basically, there, there's a list that, that we're, we're running right now. And in a few weeks, uh, we'll actually have providers able to start helping people. 
Awesome. Well, I will put a link to that site in the show notes. Um, and, and, and also put a link probably to your Instagram and I'll tag you in some of the posts and stuff too. So you see it and I'll send this over. I, we did breach the one hour mark. So, uh, <laughs> we'll have to cut some of that off to put it on Instagram, but I just really appreciated talking to you and really appreciate your time. Pejman. So, um, I appreciate it. And I'm sure we will talk soon. I, I appreciate you and, and thank you for doing this work. It was, it was really, really a pleasure. Awesome. Well, cheers. Cheers.